Everybody here has stories that you need to tell, and now is the time to do it. Tell stories and tell each one with love, ending with, I love you. I love you. Thank you. So, welcome everyone to True Tales Radio, coming to you live from WSCA's West End Studio at 909 Islington Street in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. True Tales Radio is a place for local people to share their true stories with our on-air listeners and in-studio audience, and to come and be a part of this local, independent community radio station that we're so lucky to have here in the seacoast of New Hampshire. Each month, we focus on a theme, and this month, that theme is gratitude, in keeping with the season. Our underwriters for tonight's program are Jan Hansen, who believes in the unique value of having an independent community radio station in the Seacoast, who we are so sad can't be with us tonight. He's usually always here. <laughs> Hi, Jan. We miss you. And Pat Spaulding, who believes in stories for grown-ups and True Tales Radio, and who wants to know, hey, what's your story? So... Here's how tonight's show will progress. You'll be hearing five storytellers, all local folks, who are going to bring us true stories from their lives. We um, limit, limit everyone to ten minutes for their telling, ten or so minutes. Um, as you heard, we have five people, not six tonight. We have someone who had to cancel travel plans, got screwed up for him because of the coming storm. And leaves us a little extra time. I'll tell you about that in a few minutes. But we'll probably have him, we hope, to have Skip come and tell us his story next month. Um, in any case, people are generally limited to 10 minutes. And there's no system of voting or rating. There's no judgment. We're not giving anyone grades. This is not about that. It's really about giving folks the opportunity to come together share their stories, and um, connect. So, before we get into our five storytellers' pieces, because we have that extra few minutes, we are going to invite our dynamic studio, in-studio audience. Hi, in-studio audience. First, everyone say hi. Everyone listening is invited to come down for a different show and be part of the studio audience. As you'll see tonight, not only are they going to have an opportunity to be part of the show, but there are um, visual aids to at least one of tonight's stories that those of you on air are going to be sad to miss. But in any case, we're going to invite audience members to come on up and share a line or two. You can start even moving this way now. A line or two about what they're grateful for in their lives. Um, come on here <laughs> towards the, towards the uh, mic. Cool. You don't way. have to come too close. I'll share something I'm feeling grateful for right now, and that is community, the wonderful community we have here um, in our area. And maybe say your name and something you're grateful for. You can actually come around this side of the mic. It doesn't matter. It's Hi, I'm Robin McLean, and I'm thankful for my family all around the country and my friends. And I'm also grateful for my garden mm. and especially the late lettuce. Mm. <laughs> 
Hi, I'm Liz Worth, and I'm thankful for the Ways Meet Center in Durham and the campus ministry pastor, Larry Bricknerwood, who made such a tangible contribution to our Seacoast region community. Over a 100 volunteers gathered and packed food and Thanksgiving-related items, and the boxes were delivered by local folks today to brighten many people's Thanksgiving holiday. Lovely. Wow. Nice. Nice one. Well, my name is Cynthia Chattis, and I am grateful for creative culinary passions. <laughs> I'm grateful for sunlight, for music, for language, spoken word. I'm grateful for generous um, folks, people in the neighborhood, in the community, who are there for others, giving of their time and skills and talents for no pay sometimes. <laughs> but I'm very grateful for Great. that. Great. Thanks, Cynthia. Hi, thank you. My name is Nancy Brown, and I have so many things I'm thankful for. It's hard to narrow it down, but I, the top five are family, friends, health and well-being, music, and nature. Thank you. I'm Pat Spaulding, and I'm grateful for one little boy named Sammy Waters, who's six years old, and who, although I didn't have children of my own, was born at a time and place and situation that allowed me to become a grandma. Mm. Oh. <laughs> Excellent. Thanks so much for sharing, folks. So, um... This is Amy Antonucci passing the mic on. I'll be back to do more FCC and announcer things. But here is Pat Spaulding, who will MC and introduce our storytellers. Come on back up, Pat. Hey, everybody. Good to see you here tonight. First up, we have Kathy Wolf. She lives in Kittery's Foreside with the Brooklyn Brothers, two black cats. Wow. Spencer, the blind deaf dog, has since moved on to Los Angeles. And considering the weather that's coming up soon, who can blame him? <laughs> Kathy's concerns of late focus on the climate crisis, the future of her neighborhood, and on how to deal with an abundant crop of pears that I guess she's still dealing with. She is a writer who has plied her trade for the Associated Press, UNH, Dartmouth, and Tufts, as well as having written a lot of personal essays, including the two that she will tell us about tonight. Bones is one and bathing the other. Kathy? There are times in most of our lives when we become painfully aware of how wonderful our body is and how fragile. For me, that experience led to a sense of gratitude. Some days when I awake, I reach my arms toward the ceiling and I say, good morning to my hands. <laughs> In the pre-dawn light, they dance and silhouette above my head, and I marvel at their bony grace, and I thank them for just being. It's part of a relationship that I began with my body 16 years ago, emerging from the anesthesia of surgery. In that strange twilight zone, I saw behind my closed eyes my skeleton. It was like a reverse X-ray with the bones a shiny, dark steel gray, and the surrounding flesh a translucent white. 
I could see light through the joints of my elbows and my hips and my knees and my fingers. I could see the fissures of my, my skull and the depth of my eye sockets and even the space between my vertebrae. It should have been a little scary, sort of looking at death, it seemed like, but it was really very interesting. And so I kind of came out of the anesthesia reluctantly. But when I did open my eyes, I was told I had ovarian cancer. And for the next few days, I was angry. Actually, I was furious. How could this body betray me? I had always trusted it. And that's how I was able as a child to feel perfectly safe at the top of the tallest tree on the thinnest of branches, and how when I got older I could do a back straddle without looking over my shoulder on the uneven parallel bars, and how even eventually that trust let me face pregnancy and childbirth with more or less patience and awe. (laughs) Eventually, though, I managed to change that anger into pity for my body. It might have been the incision I examined on my abdomen or the needles that seemed to constantly be in my arms. And slowly, very slowly, I recognized that a distance between myself and my body, between my, my cancer and my being. I never abandoned my body. I just decided we needed a partnership. I didn't see us as one and the same. We were close. We were very, very close but we were separate. We would accept each other's faults, I decided, and work together to get through this, sort of like you would do in a good marriage, which I didn't have at the time. (laughs) I tried to note the achievements. I I was vain about the 25 pounds I'd lost in the two weeks after surgery. I sat out a lot in the early summer sun, and I thought my tan looked great. It was only later that I realized my steady diet of carrot juice had given me a weird orange tint. (laughs) Chemotherapy challenged this partnership between me and my body. I tried all the recommended imaging techniques to deal with chemo. You know, you read about them in uh, books and hear them on tapes and you have workshops and your friends who've had chemotherapy tell you. And you would, I would take time to think of the toxins from the chemo rushing through my bloodstream that they were really just hungry sharks eating all the bad cancer cells or they were a waterfall washing away and revi- the bad stuff and reviving the good stuff or a bright, bright yellow light shining into the corners of my physical existence evaporating what shouldn't be there, i.e. cancer. But soon I just opted for a much more direct approach. Okay, I bargained with my digestive tract. I won't eat dairy, meat, sugar, or even alcohol, if you will just keep doing your job. Listen, I earnestly told my liver, I'm counting on you. Cleanse those toxins. Hang in there. A successful bathroom visit would find me whispering thanks and encouragement to my colon. An unsuccessful one would lead me to a pep talk. (laughs) My bone marrow was not as open to negotiation repeatedly failing to renew its white blood cell production after a chemo treatment. But in the end, it always pulled through, and I tried not to be too critical. It did have the help of uh, Big Pharma in pulling through. I knew that uh, we needed each other. So along with the deals and the demands, I took time each day to thank my body for just being what it is. 
and acknowledging that we shared a common goal, a goal of survival. And we did survive. I never made my body, either during the council or after, into any kind of temple of worship. I resumed eating chicken and chocolate and drinking wine and beer, and I don't always get enough sleep or exercise, and I don't always say good morning to my hands. But the partnership, 16 years cancer-free, continues. We take time just to be together, to listen to each other, to feel our shared needs, and to thank each other in ways that we never did before. There was another time of surprising gratitude in my life. It was several years after the cancer, and it involved somebody else's body. In between writing jobs that I've made a living on, or used to make a living on, uh, I would work. I would take other kind of work. I worked in an apple orchard. I scrubbed windows. I currently have a job scrubbing pots and pans, just four hours a week. But I would advise women uh, who were seeking abortions. I worked for the census, and I helped people in their homes. Something that happened on that last job led me to write this essay. I had never bathed a stranger. My son, when he was little, yes, and myself, of course, but not a stranger, not a sad woman who no longer could use the French cookbooks carefully stored in a cabinet above the stove in her small apartment, who surrounded her chair with stacks of magazines and newspapers and who sat there for hours listening day and night to a classical music radio station. She had been alone much of her life, and now she had grown old with no relatives, no friends, no money. I had never bathed a sad, strange woman who needed help. Only late afternoon light slanted into the small bathroom, casting half this woman's body in shadow. She stood motionless, silent, head bowed, hair falling forward, hiding her face. I gently washed her neck and her back, I could feel each vertebrae under the washcloth, the sharpness of her shoulder blades. She neither helped nor resisted, as I lifted first her left arm and then her right, moving the rag across the hollows and creases, over the elbows and down the long-fingered hands. This is a body, I thought, that may soon be deserted. This is a body that has witnessed a life, these hands have applauded at concerts, prepared meals, signed checks, wiped away tears, put on lipstick. This is a body that still matters, perhaps now more than ever, to the soul that lives in it. I continued gently washing, rinsing, drying her body. She continued to let me. I felt a tenderness, a gentleness I had never experienced before, even with my son when he was a baby. Everyone, I thought, should have the chance to bathe a stranger at least once. It's a ritual of giving and receiving. When we were done and she was dry and clothed, I thanked her. Thank you, Kathy. That was... Those two pieces were just beautifully written and told. Now we have John Lovering. He lives in Dover, but he spends most of this time, most of his time at this radio station, I think. 
After working in the education field for 36 years as a biology and media production teacher, John is now happily retired. He's been volunteering right here at WSCA since 2004 as the host of Audio Theater, a program that airs each Tuesday night right at this time. And since January 2014, he's been the producer of this show, True Tales Radio. 25 years ago, John received a simple gift that changed his life in ways that he never could have guessed. So right here, right now, to tell us his story, a very special gift, here's Johnny. (laughs) Well, it was Christmas of 1989, and my parents made their traditional Christmas Day visit to our house as we got together for Christmas dinner and exchanged presents between my parents, my family, my wife, and my two young daughters. And after the greetings, the usual hugs and kisses, along with the comments from my mother, how damn cold it was, and uh, I'm so sick and tired of this snow, which she, you generally said every year, we eventually all migrated to the family room where there was a nice wax log aflame in the fireplace doing its best to impersonate a real wood log. <laughs> and my father commented, as he usually did, you use those fake logs, huh? You see, I grew up on a farm where we had three fireplaces and two wood stoves, which were our only sources of heat. And the fuel was the several cords of wood that we had cut during the summer, dried and then sawed into 18-inch logs and piled into our barn. In the late fall, in anticipation of the, excuse me, the cold winter ahead, so the wax log mm, didn't really do it for my father, even though I had purchased one that actually popped and crackled. But I guess it was the pink, turquoise, and green flames that gave it away. (laughs) That, in the very little heat, practically no smoke, and the distinct odor of a melting candle in the room. (laughs) Anyway, time came to exchange gifts. Now, when I was growing up on Christmas Day, my sister and I, who was six years older than I am, uh, I hope you remember that, Carol, if you're listening, uh, we would receive our parents, our presents, rather, first thing in the morning, like most children. But that special gift, the one we had asked for, the one thing we really, really wanted, didn't appear. When I was young, I was always disappointed and tried really hard not to show it, wiping away the tears and all. That's, I didn't really, but it, <laughs> but it wasn't, it wasn't too many Christmases that went by before I figured out my father's plan. You see, he would always save the last present in another room, under the bed in a closet, anywhere but under the tree. And after the presents, after they were all given out, all the ones under the trees, and he had waited the appropriate time to see my sister and I fake our total happiness with all the things we received, sans the one special thing we did not receive but had asked for, all of a sudden my father would jump up and say, you know, Sylvia, that was my mother's name, I think there's a group of, a couple of gifts hidden away somewhere that we forgot to wrap. And he'd leave the room and he'd come back carrying a couple of presents, displaying a wide grin on his face. And those presents, of course, were the special gifts. And my parents always came through. It got so that once we caught on to his plan, it was hard to look sad when we knew (laughs) the special gifts were going to appear eventually. Now, my father was a smart man, and he caught on to that in later years. When I was in junior high, he actually waited a day or two after Christmas. (laughs) And then, 
accidentally discovered the presents in so secret a hideaway that he had actually forgotten where he had put them. Well, on this Christmas day in 1989, my father did it again. But this time he had forgotten a special present for me in the trunk of his car. Now, the unique thing was that about, the, about this was that I had not asked for this special present. I mean, I was 43 at the time, and all I could do to carry out the same routine on my own children, you know, I was working on that. Anyway, Dad went out, and he came back in the house with a rather, a rather large wrapped package, and his face was bright red, and, and I thought, gee, because of the cold. But when he handed me the package, and, it, and he said, Merry Christmas from your mother and me, and I found the package to be quite heavy. I opened it up, and inside was a 1934 wooden silver tone table model radio, which, which is what I'm showing the people here now, for those of you at home. Look closely into your speaker and you can see it. <laughs> it's an antique radio. And as a kid, I had always loved the old radios that we had in the family, but they kept disappearing, only to be replaced by more and more modern radios. Eventually, the tubes disappeared altogether, and we wound up with transistor radios. The old tube radios were generally discarded in the local dump. Yep, there was no recycling back then. This radio from that Christmas day in 1989 is still in my possession. Here it is. It is the radio, and it is the reason that I am here tonight. You see, I discovered that this radio was a magic radio. When I turned it on, the tubes glowed brightly and the dial lit. The speaker buzzed and crackled a little, and there was a slight hum in the background, but it worked. <laughs> I picked up a whole bunch of AM stations. That is all I could receive. You know, in 1934, there were no FM stations. I did not care. I loved this radio. I instantly began to wonder what the original owners of the radio listened to back in 1934 and all the years that passed. The Depression, Franklin Roosevelt's fireside chats, World War II, Edward R. Murrow's broadcast from Britain, Eisenhower on the D-Day invasion, Winston Churchill speaking on the German Blitzkrieg on London. How about all the radio comedy, variety, mystery, detective, western, thriller, soap operas, and game shows? Wow, my imagination went wild. Within six months, I started purchasing cassette tapes of these shows. And to make things more complicated, I have always been interested in how these things worked, radios, how they worked, fascinated by the glowing tubes. So I started buying all the books on antique radio restoration that I could find, and then I found myself going to flea markets and old TV radio repair shops that were going out of business at the time, and to antique radio collectors that I read about in various trade magazines and found online, and I began buying old radios, tube testers, oscilloscopes, meters, all sorts of tools. My first radio purchase was a 1929 Atwater Kent console, which is beautiful and still running and in our house now. Skip ahead to 2003. Fourteen years since the 1934 Silvertone was put into my hands as a Christmas present from my mother and father. I now had over 150 radios, <laughs> most of which I had restored, learning it all on my own with no electrical repair background, but with a lot of passion and a few damn good electric shocks, uh, <laughs> like the one that knocked me off the chair onto the floor as when my watch hit part of the chassis and I grounded it and it went through me instead of... So there were a few lessons I learned, that's for sure. I, I now had a good-sized collection, but I had also built up an assortment of over 500 old-time radios, now buying them on CDs. One afternoon in the fall of 2003, my wife brought me an article from the Portsmouth Herald, and she said, look at this, they're going to start a new radio station in Portsmouth. 
Portsmouth Community Radio. Hmm. I was retiring uh, as an educator in 2004, so getting involved in a new radio station was like icing on the proverbial cake to me. I wrote to Tim Stone. I volunteered to be on the engineering planning committee for this station. In September of 2004, we went on the air. I submitted a program proposal for a show called Audio Theater, where I would be able to share my passion for old-time radio programming, an audio gateway to the cultural history of America from the 1930s to the 1980s, a program that I thought would be both entertaining and, in many ways, educational. My show proposal was accepted, and I did my first broadcast on September 29, 2004. Since then, I have done over 525 two-hour programs, only missing three times in uh, over 11 years. Once I was in the hospital, and two, there were blizzards. <laughs> My wife said, if I was dying, you'd go to that radio station. <laughs> Broadcasting about 1,700 different old-time shows, my collection now numbers over 3,500. I still store, restore antique radios, though when I moved from Hampton to Dover in 2008, I did sell about half of my collection, with about 75 radios remaining and several on the bench waiting to be worked on this winter. I still love the challenge of bringing an old radio to life and preserving that amazing technology that was the forerunner of all the radios we have today and, for that sake, all sorts of media that we have today. Now, my mother and father were married for 67 years. My, my dad passed away at the age of 90 on December 9, 2005. My mother followed him just six weeks later. Uh, she was 84. They both got to hear my radio show and listen to it faithfully every Tuesday. My father, who had dementia at that point in his life, would say to my mother, Is that my John on the radio? And she would say, yes, of course it is, you damn fool. <laughs> That's, that was love for her. That's, that was love. He's playing all those old radio shows we used to listen to. And he would smile. He'd sit back in his recliner with a bowl of popcorn in his lap. And he'd say, turn it up a little, Siv. I used to tell him that he got me started in all of this. And that special gift on Christmas of 1989. And he would say, oh, for gosh sakes, really? Me? Yes, Dad, you. Thank you so much for the gift that has kept on giving for all these years. A very special gift indeed. Thank you so much for telling that, John. Wasn't that wonderful? Oh, and those of you who can't see it, it's so beautiful. It's wooden box and oh, there are knobs. neat and there are knobs yes knobs wow so um i'm amy antonucci and it seems to be 705 you're listening to portsmouth community radio wscalp 106.1 fm coming to you from portsmouth new hampshire this is true tales radio and pat spaulding is going to introduce our next storyteller to you Craig Wirth lives with his talented wife, Liz, in Newmarket, New Hampshire. He's a hospice volunteer who also volunteers for pet therapy. And, oh yeah, Craig is a singer-songwriter who's been touring internationally now for, okay, how many years is it now, Craig? Oh, uh, seven or eight years, something like that. Wow, seven or eight yeah, years, yeah. something like that. <laughs> to countries all over the world. I think you've performed at a lot of places that are really far away, correct? That's correct. 
Okay. He'll help me know or not. <laughs> yep, he really misses his teaching job. Maybe not. <laughs> Many of Craig's original songs are stories. This one, titled Belated Gratitude for a Stunningly Bad Haircut, was inspired by looking back at the things that were, in hindsight, tremendous gifts that his brother gave to him. Craig will now tell us this radio tale of appreciation 45 years overdue. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Pat. I, I do want to, it was important to me to clarify that we are talking about a historical haircut, not the one I'm wearing right now. <laughs> I didn't want you to embarrass yourself by leaning to the person next to you saying, that is a really bad haircut. <laughs> what a courageous man to come and declare that publicly on radio. No. This was a good haircut uh, but about nine weeks ago. But, um, uh, yeah, I'll tell you about this stunningly bad haircut, which is a very old one. Um, but first, I'll set the stage a little bit. Uh, I'm the eldest of six children. And I, I suppose we, I, our family has uh, pretty much the stereotypical birth order characteristics. So firstborn, you know, most handsome, most intelligent, all those things, <laughs> they hold pretty much true in our family as well. And um, no, I, I was the eldest of six. I have um, four wonderful sisters. The fourth born in the family is my brother Charlie, the only other male child. And um, he's a wonder. But at the time uh, when we were little, he was more like a piece of furniture to me. And I, I'm not proud of this characterization. This is just how I think I behaved back then. He was, you know, a piece of furniture in that he was, he was handy to have around once in a while, you know, and he could, he could be company um, in the absence of more interesting company, like, <laughs> like neighborhood kids or, or an older cousin or something. Um, so we did some things together. But largely he was just there and sometimes always there and sometimes annoyingly there, <laughs> like uh, his proximity was annoying. And when, uh, on occasion, he was um, not happy with not being noticed, with being treated like a piece of furniture, <laughs> he would do things to irritate me. And I, it took me years and years to realize this wasn't out of any kind of mean-spiritedness or an intention of being annoying. It was, it was to get my attention. And as we know, sometimes we human beings will do things uh, that get us negative attention, but it's better than not being noticed at all. And Charlie would come up with creative ways to do that. <laughs> so one example is uh, sometimes uh, at night at bedtime, I'd be getting to bed just a little bit later than he was. And he appeared to be sleeping soundly like a little cherub across the room in our shared bedroom. And, um, and you wouldn't know this to look at my vehicle today or some of the spaces I work in, but I was a neatnik as a child. I don't know what <laughs> happened, but, but uh, ask my wife. That does not, that's nothing she's ever seen. But back then, my bed was just so, and my room, my side of the room was just so. And so Charlie was sleeping, it seemed, over there uh, soundly, and I was preparing to turn down my covers just so and get in my bed. And I'd just turn out the light, and I'd hear this plop sound of something hit the floor on my side of the room. And I'd turn on the light, and there's a stinky pair of old socks on my floor. Now, the only source of this projectile could be my brother Charles. 
but you'd never he didn't seem to have moved at all <laughs> and I'd say something under my breath um, uh, something I probably could say on WSCA because I didn't have a vocabulary like I do today <laughs> and I'd toss these socks over there um, and then lights out again grumble plop they would return to my side of the floor and this would go on for maybe 40 minutes or so and uh, I didn't do much about it. I complained to my parents the next day. But Charlie just wanted to be more than a, than a, a chair in the corner of my life, you know. So um, our dad uh, is a very, um, he was a very uh, creative and wonderful person. Um, he was, he could be grumpy at times, but many wonderful qualities. Um, among them was his thrift which I didn't appreciate as a boy. Uh, I do now quite a bit in hindsight, and I don't have much of that. My brother has a lot more of that than I do. But Dad found different ways to economize. And one of his favorite things that he discovered was that he could give us haircuts himself, thirty saving a $1.50, two and a quarter, some serious dollars. And Dad would... Uh, take these clippers that he bought on discount and you know the kind that they have those little plastic jobbies guards you can put on them with different lengths so you could if you wanted to get someone's hair an eighth, eighth of an inch long you could put on that little skinny black little guide up to one inch and I didn't think much about these haircuts I wasn't really looking forward to them but I knew that there was no arguing with dad when he had an idea like this so uh, every once in a while when he thought it was time that I needed to have my hair trimmed he'd uh, sit um, me and eventually my brother in the chair and he'd take these clippers out well one very special day um, we were about to go play baseball down the end of our Long Island street our little bluestone street with the boys from the neighborhood. And my brother was going to be allowed to tag along this time, which he could sometimes when I felt so generous. And uh, Dad said, first you need a haircut. Your hair is too long. And I said, okay, but can you make it quick, Pop? I, I really, I got to play baseball. <laughs> so I sat in the chair, and Dad took the clippers to me. And things were going just as I would expect, and, and I had been accustomed to. And... He was finishing up, and he took the guard off, and he was going to sharpen the edges a little bit on my on my my cut. And I heard him say, "Whoops!" <laughs> <laughs> now, "whoops" is not a word you want to hear from your father when he's giving you a haircut, just as you wouldn't want to hear it when you were undergoing surgery, for, <laughs> for multiple reasons, for for the surgeon's skill and also maybe the anest. Anesthetologist there was, was anesthesiologist wouldn't be a crackerjack professional, but uh, Dad said whoops, and that just that scared the heck out of me. But I didn't yet know what whoops meant. <laughs> and before I could discern what whoops meant, he was working on the other side of my head <laughs> and doing some procedure. <laughs> my hands went up to the sides of my face. And in a Braille-like fashion, I read what the whoops was about. Dad had forgotten about the concept of sideburns, which were 
very important <laughs> in June of 1966. <laughs> they were, quite honestly, I'm not sure if it was June, I'm not sure it was 66, but I thought it would be a more effective storytelling if I was defending it. <laughs> So on June 3rd, 1966, it was, it was a Sunday at 2.34 p.m. Dad made a straight line from the top of my right ear to about the level of my eyebrow, and he cut every bit of hair off straight across. And then, so as to have it not appear as a tragic error, he did the same thing on the left side of my head where it might uh, lead people to believe that this was a bold uh, fashion statement. <clears throat> I was horrified. I mean, I really was horrified for multiple reasons. It wasn't my goal to be the handsomest guy in school or to be handsome at all in school. It was my goal not to be noticed for, any, for anything that was a difference because that was dangerous. It was, it was scary for lots of reasons in school. So I tried to go through every day under the radar, marching along, doing my schoolwork, staying out of, <laughs> out of the reach of certain characters. And this was going to just destroy me. I was a bit angry. Mostly I was just terrified of what was to come for this style that I now had on, I was wearing on my head, pronouncing to the world that maybe my father cut my hair and that, um, well, it was, it was a sad thing. I started crying almost immediately. So I'm 11 years old, and I raced out of the house, and I went straight to the red maple tree that was on the side of our home in, in Lindenhurst, Long Island, New York. It was a big, beautiful maple tree, and it was perfect as a, uh, a refuge, which I, had, I used it many times. But it had one branch just above my fingertip reach, that was about as thick around as my wrist. And it came straight out the side. It wasn't on an angle reaching to the sky. It came straight out at a 90-degree angle with the trunk. And you could just reach your hands up and take a slight little jump. And you'd grab onto that branch. And then you'd, with the body I had then, I would pull myself up, get onto that, and I could be 14, 16, 20 feet up in that tree in no time at all. I went up to mid-level, and I continued my whimpering alone in my shame and fear and little bits of anger. Um, just mortified. All thoughts of going to play baseball, totally gone. Just wondering about the next time I appeared at school, which would be two days from then, what would happen to me. After what, um, in my mind now, it's uh, I was up about 53 feet <laughs> in the tree and I stayed there for about 17 hours, but in reality, I think it was probably about 14 feet up, and I think it was about uh, 20 minutes. <laughs> to be honest, since we're friends, and I'm trying to keep this, I want you to focus on the, the truth that's to come. Uh, all of a sudden, I'm looking down at the ground, and a figure appears. It's my brother Charlie. And he's looking at, up at me, and he's waving his arms around. This furniture has sprung to life. <laughs> and he's, he's got a big grin on his face. I'm going, oh, that's what I need. My little brother to be making fun of my stupid, stupid haircut. Um, 
And he's smiling with a big grin. And he's waving. And he says, come on down. Come on down, Craig. It's okay. Come on down. And I'm looking at him, and he looks different. He's got a fresh haircut. And he turns his head to the right and to the left. And he's got the dad special. <laughs> my brother had my father cut his hair with exactly the same catastrophic error that he made on my head so that he would match me, so that he would give me company in my, in my misery. I, I have to tell you that at the time, I believe I appreciated it, but I didn't let it fully in. I didn't let it fully in. It's only uh, maybe a month ago that I had occasion to recall this story, and, and that just sprang out at me like a bullet uh, with clarity and with, um, <clears throat> with meaning, what that meant for him to do that. I, I don't even know, to tell you the truth, and I will ask him after tonight. I don't know if we went to play baseball. I think we might have. But, but I, I've never seen that moment more clearly than I did today, some whatever this is, 45, 50 years later. Um, it's a stunning thing. There are many other stories about my brother, but um, I, I am grateful <clears throat> for his... That's the haircut I'm grateful for, the one that Charlie Worth got. Um, I'm also grateful for the traits uh, that my brother shares with my dad, my departed dad. There are many aspects to my brother <clears throat> that are like my dad. And um, he, keeps, he keeps Pop alive for all of us, I think, in some ways that are, they're not all flattering ways, but I treasure every one of them. Uh, this is one of my <clears throat> song stories. So it's a it's a story that that leads to a, a short song that I wrote about Charlie um, just a couple weeks ago, and I'm going to sing that for you now. <clears throat> it's inspired by him and the bits of pop that are that are in him. Chip off the block of rock-hard maple Till it looks like the leg of a handmade table Whistle and sing Tap the hammer See the curls from the chisel spread It's way past time for bed Remember the days we were by the water With our busy boy and our wild-ride daughter There's a photograph We've got somewhere The sun was red It's way past time for bed In this little light Things are mostly right and the darkness covers my longing
Carve out the place on the peaches pit where the copper wires oars will fit on this tiny boat that's in my head. It's way past time for bed. Thank you very much. Thanks, Craig. That was a great story and beautiful song. Andy Davis is up next. He lives with his wife and daughter at the foot of Mount Chikora in the White Mountains. Andy is a storyteller who animates his tales with warmth, humor, and verve. He's a True Tales radio alumnus who told a very compelling story at the station in September. Andy draws his material from life here in New Hampshire and from the folklore of the wider world. He has entertained audiences as far away as Paris, <laughs> Bamako, Bam Bamako, Bamako, okay. Did we go over this We did, and I meant to go over it again with you, and I, oh well, San Diego, I can say that, um, and San Diego. I have had the pleasure of hearing many of Andy's honest, vibrantly told tales, and we are grateful to have him here tonight to tell his story private garage. Thanks, Pat. Uh, so, Craig and John, I also have a father story, but don't worry, it's not like wearing the same dress to the prom. <laughs> so, when my father was growing up uh, in Sharon, Massachusetts, on Memorial Day, his father would take him to stand under the elms on East Street, and they'd watch the parade wind its way from the town hall up to Rocky Ridge Cemetery. The color guard would go by, and the veterans of the Great War, and then the high school band, and the veterans of the Spanish-American War, and the junior high band, and then all the way at the end of the parade, sitting ramrod straight in the back seat of a convertible, were two weazened old gentlemen in ill-fitting suits, the uniforms that might once have been blue, the last living veterans of the Civil War. And Grandpa would look down at my father and say, Alan, someone from our family's been in every war this country ever fought. Well, my dad's opportunity to carry on the family tradition came along soon enough. In January of 1944, when he turned 18, he went right down and enlisted and very soon after that, he was in Germany. And he fought in the Ruhr Pocket and at Remagen Bridge and Ingolstadt. And when the war in Europe wrapped up, he was sent off to the Pacific. And he was on a ship with his unit bound for a probable invasion of Japan when the war ended. So when I was a boy, growing up in a series of small towns on the coast of Maine and other places. On Memorial Day, 
my dad would take me down to Elm Street or Main Street or South Street to stand under where the elms used to be and watch the parade. The color guard would go by and the Vietnam vets would shamble by and then the high school band and after that the Korean vets and after them the World War II vets and then the junior high band and all the way at the end of the parade sitting straight in the back of a convertible were the last vets of World War I. And my father had squeezed my hand and say, Andy, someone from our family's been in every war this country ever fought. My father always taught us that the privilege of being born in this country brings with it responsibility. And for him, that mostly meant the responsibility of military service. So that expectation was part of the furniture of my childhood, kind of like the foot-long armored anti-tank shell that propped open the front door in every house we ever lived in. The background noise of my childhood was the war in Vietnam which mostly came at us through the television, which was so off and on that it was like another relative sitting in the corner of the living room, like a crazy old uncle who sat there making rat-tat-tat noises and reciting body counts in the voice of Walter Cronkite. So when my time came, I didn't carry on the family tradition. Not only did I not enlist, but I worked to s prevent or stop all the wars of my generation, which brought a certain distance between dad and me. I dropped in and out of college, and when I wasn't studying, I went off to see the world without a uniform. And so that's how in January of 1984, I decided to go off to Belgium and France to see whether my high school French would keep me fed and get me from place to place. My high school French teacher, Madame Laroche, had always said, André, you are murdering the language! <laughs> But she said it with a twinkle in her eye, so I thought it was worth a shot. <laughs> so I flew to Brussels, and then I took the bus to the edge of the city and hitchhiked southeast toward Namur and the French border. Rain was threatening all that first day, and I was mostly following the Meuse River, so I was running a gauntlet of bluffs on either side, crowned with the castles and fortifications of a thousand years of war. So when I got out of the last car, just over the border in Givet in France, in the late afternoon, the, the threats finally became reality as the sky opened up, and I got out of the car and ran in a cafe. It was a dark little place, and I repacked my pack to try to 
keep things uh, a little bit dry. And I ordered a croque-monsieur, a croque-madame, and a bière. And I, as I, I messed with my pack as I was waiting for the food. And then after I was finished eating, I finished my beer while playing a few games on the Charlie's Angels pinball machine, which was the only bit of color in that drab little place. And after I decided the machine had taken enough of my francs, I shouldered my pack and went back out into the encroaching dusk. And encroaching it was. It was a lot darker and a lot wetter. And so I quickly made my way to the road out of town towards Reims and Paris. But the little stone houses were getting further and further apart. I was mostly staying in youth hostels, at least that was my plan, but there wasn't a youth hostel in Givet. So with some concern, I watched these houses get further and further apart, and I looked for a place where I could stay the night. And then I saw a little garage on the side that didn't seem attached to any house. And the the doors were kind of falling in a bit, falling off the hinges, but I pushed them open and it looked dry inside. So I slipped in and I spread out my sleeping bag and read by my candle lantern for a few minutes and went to sleep. And I awoke sometime in the night to a familiar sound. It was the sound of a car engine, I realized as I came more awake. And then I knew I was right when the doors of the garage opened up and the place was flooded with light. So I flexed my invisibility muscles, hoping for the best. We didn't have invisibility cloaks in those days. And uh, I heard the car door open and... Then the, the doors had opened, and then I didn't hear anything else. And I could imagine whoever it was looking incredulously at this giant blue nylon caterpillar, wondering how it got into his garage. But finally he blurts out in a man's voice, Mais, mais, c'est un garage privé! But it's a private garage! So I poked my head out of the sleeping bag as if I was just waking up. I had got good at ordering croissants and asking directions, but apologies were new to me. Really, I was 22. Apologies were new in almost any language. <laughs> but I did my best. I blurted something out, and he recognized the accent. He said, he, he asked if I was a foreigner. And I said, oui, je suis américain. And he said, Ah bon, j'aime les Américains assez bien. Uh, oh well, I like Americans well enough. <laughs> and the gray-haired Frenchman turned and got back in his car, pulled it all the way in without running me over, and then got out, wished me bonne nuit, and left the garage, closing the door behind him. And that was all I saw of him. Because the next morning I was up at dawn and headed down the road. Now, I recognized at the time that 
he probably tolerated me because of the role that U.S. troops had played liberating France at the end of the war. But as I've revisited this memory in re recent years, I've put a more personal face on it, imagining that it was my father and his young comrades in arms that had prevailed upon this now old Frenchman to give the benefit of the doubt to another young American 40 years later. My dad's going to turn 89 in January. And his remaining ambition is to be that guy sitting ramrod straight in the back seat of the convertible, the last surviving veteran of World War II. I'm rooting for him. Over the years, which were characterized more by the distance between us than by what we had in common, I still remembered to thank my father for always keeping a roof over my head and keeping me fed and clothed. But there were lots of little things that I never remembered to be thankful for. Little things like passing on the storytelling gene and the male pattern baldness <laughs> that keeps me cool in the summer and in certain performance situations. And the ethic that with privilege comes responsibility. And then so many other little things, like a dry place to lay my head one long ago, half forgotten night on the road. Hmm. Now, you run the World Fellowship Center? Of, is, is that? I half run it with my wife who half runs it, and together we completely run it. <laughs> Excellent. All right, so you are carrying on the tradition of responsibility in that way. Good. Alrighty. We now have Peter Langley, who is the host of Blue Jazz Spell, a blues, jazz, and gospel program right here at WSCA Radio on Thursday nights from 6 to 8 p.m. He didn't tell me much about himself except that he lives in an undisclosed bunker somewhere in Summersworth, <laughs> New Hampshire. <laughs> he did, however, say about his story that sometimes you don't stop to think about what you are grateful for until life takes a detour to let you know. So here's Peter's story about that detour that led him to gratefulness. Thank you. First of all, <laughs> first of all, I'm grateful to Pat for saying the name of my show correctly, so give it up for Pat. <laughs> So I'm sitting there at uh, work one day, and uh, it's a typical day at work. I'm sitting there at the desk, like many of us probably do. And I wasn't feeling particularly great. I kind of felt a little cold coming on. And, you know, as I sat there and the day went on, I kind of felt, you know, kind of a little worse. And a few days before, I had um, sort of started developing a pain in my side. Not a really a bad pain. I call it more of a, you recently turned 40 and you have pains now kind of pain. 
And uh, so it was a minor twinge, but it was every time I like would get out of a chair, it would kind of feel sore for a minute or two. So nothing really to worry about. Although I did think it was odd. It was, it kind of felt like an organ hurt. And that's, for those of you familiar with pain, that's a not a normal one when your organs start to hurt. So the day went on, like I said, and I started feeling a little worse. Um, so I figured, well, this is probably a good reason to uh, go home now. So I told my boss that I was heading home and going to take the rest of the day off. So I'm driving down the road, you know, planning to rest and um, kind of rest up for the next day and see what happens. And it dawns on me that I live down the street from one of these um, instant health care centers, a, a ready care. So I hear my mother's voice in the back of my head. Hey, you know, it's probably not that big of a deal, but you have this pain for a little while. You're feeling kind of sick. You'd kind of be an idiot if you drove past the healthcare center and went home and just ignored it. So I decided that, or I didn't really decide. My mom's voice was playing in my head and it wouldn't stop. So I decided to go to the uh, ready care. And I, I walk on in and uh, kind of tell them what's going on. And, uh, you know, they did an examination. I figured I'd get a pill or two in Advil, if I was lucky, some NyQuil, and uh, get on out of there. But um, we go over the symptoms, and he said, well, we really can't help you. And I said, well, that's interesting. There's a medical facility that can't help me. And he said, you need to go to the emergency room. And I kind of looked at him very strangely, and what? And he said, yes, um, we think you have something called diverticulitis, we think. And um, it's a, a problem with your digestive tract. And occasionally there can be a perforation and you can um, go septic and it can, be, it can be really very serious. So you need to go to the emergency room right away. So I said, all right, I'm feeling fine. It was kind of strange to be told to go to the emergency room, and you're like, all right, I think I have directions. It's right around the corner down there. And I walked out and proceeded to uh, drive myself to the emergency room. So I stroll into Wentworth Douglas, and you know you're in trouble when you walk into the emergency room. You say who you are, and they're, oh, yes, we've been waiting for you, this team of people. I'm like, oh, this, is, this, is, this probably isn't very good. So I go in, I go through the various uh, procedures. And again, I'm not in a lot of pain. I'm not real feeling particularly bad. I just kind of have a cold. And, uh, you know, they say, yeah, we're going to have to admit you. I'm like, all right, I'll get admitted. So I'm in the hospital for a, f a few days. And I started kind of to reflect that, you know, I I'm kind of grateful that my mom's voice was in my head and maybe the way that, I was raised that, hey, when something feels a little wrong, uh, you feel like something might not be right, you might want to stop and get that checked out. So I guess I was grateful that I was there. And uh, I was there for a few days, um, and then I was going to have to have surgery um, many days later. And this was a time in my life that I had uh, been divorced about a year, so I didn't have... Um, a lot of people around um, that I had either lost, I had lost contact with a lot of people or not a lot of people for support. Um, but my family lived nearby. I grew up here. So my mother would come up all the time, my brothers and sisters, bring me various things just 
check in to say hello to see how I was doing. And uh, later on, I was admitted for a longer uh, period of time. And so I could eat um, jello, I think, and broth for about four days. So I was very grateful for actual food eventually. Broth and jello, not so good. Food, food is better. Um, and these people would come in, and it was they turn over the hospital staff quite a lot there, um, working various shifts, and uh, just immensely grateful for people who are willing to work at strange, bizarre hours of the night when other people are out socializing and doing things like that. People coming in, taking care of me, you know, bringing me something. Maybe it was green jello rather than the previous day's red or, or something like that. So I was uh, certainly grateful for that. And um, eventually one day I'm sitting there and all I had to do was sit around and think. There was not much you could do in the hospital other than watch bad television and think about stuff. So um, my boss had come in, um, apparently when I was sleeping, and brought in just like some flowers and some books and things and to just say, you know, we miss you, hope you get uh, better soon. And that I felt really grateful for that. That was really kind of a, a lift of my spirits that, um, you know, here it was a workplace and it's not really a social place. We didn't know each other all that well, but went out of her way to deliver that for me. And it kind of, it felt, you know, it felt good. And I was very thankful for that. So a few days later, it's about a week later, I think, finally got out of the hospital and uh, I've been uh, fine ever since, but... I am very thankful uh, this season to always listen to yourself. Remember that if something seems wrong, maybe it probably is. And to be thankful for the people in your lives who have plenty of other things to do, but when you're in trouble or in need, they will go out of their way uh, to bring you what you need and make you feel comfortable. Thank you. That's an excellent note to end on, Peter. Thank you. So, and we thank all of our wonderful storytellers who were here tonight and our excellent studio audience who participated in many ways. Until our next True Tales radio show, I'm Amy Antonucci. And on behalf of all of us here, thanks so much for listening. And I'll now turn it back over to John Lovering, who has a few minutes more of audio theater with a Thanksgiving theme.